You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. This talk prompted me to think a little bit about my history with this community. I've been a part of the Circle of Hope community for about six years. Um, I started going to uh, Vanessa Crusoe's cell and I played on Preston's music team when I moved to Kensington. Um, for, for a while, I was kind of on and off again with the community, but I ended up staying. And I did because I had a very strong sense that I needed to. Outwardly, uh, I'm much more drawn to churches with high liturgy, the Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Episcopalian churches. And Circle of Hope did not really seem like an obvious choice. You could probably guess based on what you've experienced so far. That's very different from those churches. Uh, But nonetheless, I felt uh, this insistent voice telling me to go to Circle of Hope and untie your knots. So I'm an insular person who shies away from intense interactions with others. I'm pretty self-conscious, and I have trouble remaining true to myself when I'm around others, partly by nature, um, partly my way of responding to things in my life. But I long to connect, to have a tribe. Um, However, I frequently doubt uh, other people's acceptance of me. So my sense of belonging often feels very fragile. I keep a buffer as a protective stance. If I've been hurt and abandoned before, I can be hurt and abandoned again, so it's better to keep distance. And I wonder if you can relate to that. I imagine that you can, at least in part. Uh, I think loneliness is a part of being human, and I think we live in very lonely times. But I came to Circle of Hope specifically to try to undo the many ways that I've covered over my vulnerability with tough, impassable exterior to untangle my emotional knots through relationships with others. Uh, Ascension Sunday is today, and it's a good opportunity to reflect on the ways in which God is often not obvious to us, but how engaging our vulnerability and pain is a non-obvious path of faith. Ascension Sunday marks the occasion in the book of Acts when Jesus, having risen from the dead sometime earlier, ascends into heaven and disappears into a thick cloud, leaving his disciples looking up at the sky. It prompts us to ask, why does God hide from us? What do we make of the fact that God has made himself absent from the world, at least in an obvious way? One clue I have found uh, is found in the spirituality that comes out of desert and mountain landscapes. These are non-obvious places that throughout history many people have been drawn to in order to learn how to seek God. So in my reflections, I'll be drawing on my own experiences of loneliness in the desert, And some of what I'm saying will also be informed by this book by Belden Lane. Do you guys know that Google Drive crashed today? Belden Lane, a Presbyterian minister and theologian, wrote a book called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. Uh, It's a really good book in which Lane reads geographies of abandonment against his own reckoning with the deaths of his parents. So we'll start by reading the account of the ascension in the book of Acts. Here it is. There's two slides. Would somebody be willing to read it? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times and periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? 
this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Thank you, Bill. So the disciples have very specific expectations for what Jesus is going to do. They want him to demonstrate God's power and righteousness in a concrete public way, by specifically by establishing a geopolitical re regime that will undo the occupation of the Roman Empire and usher in an era of global, global peace with its center in Jerusalem. Uh, it's an expectation that made, makes sense. It's the way that Jews at the time imagined that things were going to play out. And that's why if you, if you read the Gospels, you find that the disciples and other people have this idea that Jesus is going to uh, institute an earthly kingdom at some point. God's relationship with the Jewish people was expressed primarily through a great leader who won military victories and protected the integrity of temple worship. So there's a way that things happen that the disciples are used to. Jesus instead, well, disappears, which is also an interesting pattern you see in the Gospels Whenever you see people trying to make Jesus into a king, he vanishes, um, which I guess you could read as him being passive aggressive. Uh, but I think another way to read that, that is as a reminder that God always pushes us beyond the realm of our expectation for how things get done, as though to invite us to look more deeply, to pay attention to the unexpected thing that could be happening. So this week, we're sitting on the cusp of Pentecost. Ah, no Pentecost slide either, um, uh, which is next Sunday. Uh, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples who are gathered in Jerusalem that Jesus referenced when he told them, you know, you, the Holy Spirit will come up, will come upon you. Uh, and that moment is really about the birth of a church whose life is defined by following a God who always called, calls us beyond the borders of what is certain and what is obvious. And so the angels tell the disciples to stop looking up because their main mission in life is now to go out and find God in the world, in the daily events of their lives. And so God's presence is not obvious, but it's revealed to us through our life in the world. Paul has this in mind when he writes to the Ephesians. He says, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity, captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Jesus, Jesus leaves, according to Paul, not to abandon us, but in order that we might learn to see his presence in all things. And I think that's what Jesus means when he tells his disciples to become his witnesses. Not just that they have already seen him, but their task is to keep on seeing him in, out there in the world. I think that the idea of evangelism or like sharing one's faith sometimes gets distorted because we, we think it amounts to us bringing to other people our certainty about God, about the world, and about where they fit into it. But I think evangel evangelism could also be a willingness to find God in the world, in other people, and even in their doubt and despair. And in that way, it's not an invitation to join us in our certainty, but to join us in our own search for meaning and for healing. We all get used to a certain way of relating to the world. We have expectations that we act on, uh, and this can get us into trouble if we're not able to let go of those expectations when things don't turn out the way we expect. There are always things that are outside of our control, people's events, circumstances, and learning to live in harmony with those things while not sacrificing who we are is a big part of our growth as human beings. 
So for me, I responded to the instability of my childhood by sacrificing my feelings in order to try to protect myself. I didn't want my expectations to always be let down, so I just tried to stop expecting anything from other people, uh, deciding instead to just not let other people have an impact on me. It was easier just to let people do whatever they do, and then I could accommodate myself knowing that I had the power, if I wanted, to remain numb. But no matter what I did, I was still the slave of expectation. It's just that instead of trying to force the world to accommodate to me, I just expected that the world would always be painful, and therefore the best thing to do was to deny my feelings as a way to cope. I learned something about the power of expectations when I traveled to New Mexico last October. Part of the trip, uh, in fact, the thing I planned the trip around was a, was a trip to go camping in White Sands National Monument. It's a beautiful, otherworldly uh, gypsum desert, and it really was beautiful. Uh, but it was also kind of disappointing, which I feel strange saying, because it was beautiful. Uh, and the reason it was is the kind of the way they set up people's uh, trip to White Sands is that it kind of encourages an atmosphere of expecting have, to have a particular kind of experience of beauty, which undermined uh, the ability, my ability to appreciate the wildness of the environment. So, I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is fun. It's kind of the fun national park. People go out there uh, like at sunset with the bottle of red wine and they watch the sunset over fields of white sand dunes. You can go moonlit horseback riding. Um, you can go sledding on the dunes. <laughs> And I probably sound like a curmudgeon. I tell people about my trip, and all they can say is they can't believe that I didn't go sledding. Um, but I think a world that always caters to our expectations can feel kind of hollow. And I'm not judging on the people that went there for those kinds of experiences. Probably by relaxing and having fun, they really had a vivid experience of something unexpected. I just had a problem because I wanted an experience of wildness. And wildness, like love or beauty, is not something that you can buy. Looking back, I think the burden was probably on me to cultivate an attitude of gratitude so that I might have been able to actually put up with the fact that things weren't the way I wanted them. And that may have actually enabled me to see the beauty that was there, like God, whose presence does indeed fill all things. But it isn't an obvious presence, precisely because it is beyond our expectations. It requires a posture of seeking, even emptying ourselves of our expectations, so that we can be open to what is there for us to see. Personally, I've always felt an intense draw to desert landscapes. The first time I saw one while I, was while I was in southern, southern Israel. Here's a shot of the Negev. Um, it was an experience I was totally unprepared for. I didn't understand how so much emptiness could somehow seem so alluring. And I think it was a kind of catharsis. Um, I think the barrenness of the rocky landscape expressed something that I wasn't letting myself feel. And there was a fascination with the wildness of it, the possibility of being confronted by something that did not adjust to my expectations or my needs, but invited me to live in a strange kind of harmony with it. I remember one day just taking a hike out into the wilderness. Uh, there wasn't any path, just hill after hill of desert waste. And it, it was a pretty stupid thing to do. <laughs> like there was, it was very rocky. No one knew I was out there. Uh, there was no cell reception, so I was basically a twisted ankle away from being food for vultures. Um, but I think I, at that point in life, I needed to feel some of the ferocity of the landscape, like in my bones, even some of the anger that I denied I had. Now, throughout history, people have gone into the desert to find God. 
These are places of abandonment where people have learned to see how God is present in their own internal places of abandonment. The fierce landscape of a desert or a mountain takes us beyond the edges of what is obvious in order to reach the place where God needs to be revealed. Going into the desert is to be confronted with a vast silence that invites us to let go of our preoccupation with concepts, words, and experience, to cultivate the interior silence that we need to hear God's whisper. Like God, the gifts of the desert are not obvious. So things that are obvious, like a chair or a book, uh, fit neatly into our expectations. We expect them to be there, and they're there. Uh, even things that are surprising, we can still understand, like this guy. <laughs> this is a tardigrade or a water bear, uh, and the only thing I'll tell you about these microscopic things is that everything you learn about them will be more amazing than the thing that you knew before about them. They can survive for 10 days in the vacuum of outer space, for instance. Um, but as weird as that thing is, um, once you learn about it, it kind of fits, it, you understand it. It fits into the furniture of your mind like anything else. And the, things with, and the thing, with, thing about things that are obvious is you can choose whether or not you want to ignore them. They don't ask anything of us. We can make plans about them. We can take calculated risks because they're predictable. And a God who asks nothing of us at first might sound great. A God who caters to our expectations might sound even better, but I wonder if we don't really have a yearning to be confronted with a mystery that is bigger than us, that actually invites us beyond our expectations into the realm of what is not obvious. But if we have to leave behind our expectations of certainty or predictability, we are going into territory where we will have to face our vulnerability, even our pain. So at one point on my trip, I was driving towards the Gila Mountain wilderness, I know some of you are really excited to not have to look at that thing anymore. <laughs> um, so I found myself on a road. Actually, this is the road. I took a Google map shot of it. Uh, on, on this road, and like I normally do when I'm on a road like that, if I'm the only car, I was going a little bit faster than the speed limit. Some things I learned about New Mexico. One, nobody drives fast. Like, seriously. Like, they couldn't believe the things I was telling them about how people drive in Philadelphia. Like, totally blown away. Like, if there's a like a, a merge, because a, a lane's closed and people have to merge, people just get over when the sign tells them to get over, even if they're a mile away from the merge point. It's really <laughs> weird. I'd, anyway, so it turns out there was at least one other car out there, um, and I got pulled over. Uh, uh, and then followed a, a pretty bizarre conversation with the cop. Like, he was curious about what I did for a living and what I was doing in New Mexico, uh, and the other thing about New Mexico is everyone is really nice, like genuinely kind. So it was hard to tell if he was just like being kind or if uh, he was just going through like the questions that he has to ask everybody traveling alone in a rented car in the middle of nowhere. Um, I think I probably fit a profile of like someone smuggling something, but I don't think I matched the eye test of somebody who was smuggling something. So it was very confusing. But anyway, at one point he asked me, do you always travel alone? which was a strange question. I was like, how do you answer that? Which I think was innocent enough, but it, um, just where I was at that point, it hit me. It was like, it, you know, at this like, weird place. I was like, oh my God, I am alone. Um, <laughs> um, and the trip was hard. I mean, it, 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 I was by myself. It required a lot of decision-making, which I'm not really good at. And there were a lot of times when I wished that I had somebody with me to kind of share the burdens and joys of traveling. So now, all of a sudden, I felt like I needed to come up with this justification to the cop about why I'm alone. Um, anyway, I got off without a warning, just a small shame spiral. No big deal. <laughs> but 
driving through the Gila Mountains later that day, um, I noticed that there were no cops checking people's speed. And I realized it was because, well, the mountain is the cop out there. Uh, but if you go too fast, you don't get a ticket. You just go off the side of the mountain. Um, and in a way, the mountain is far more severe than the cop. So there's no bargaining with the mountain. There's no discretionary warnings given. There's no arguing with gravity. But the mountain also doesn't really have an opinion about your behavior. It doesn't punish you by inducing guilt or withholding affection. So in its kind of stern solidity, invites you to live, with a, with harmony, to live in harmony with it or not. Uh, to drive just not however you feel like, but in a way that makes sense with the territory that you're in. And interestingly, I think we sometimes would prefer that God was more like a cop than a mountain. The disciples definitely did. I imagine one of the reasons why they were so excited for, um, for Jesus to restore the kingdom of Israel is because they thought they were on the right side of God's justice. Um, instead, Jesus showed himself to be more like a mountain, wild and uncontained, unwilling to fit neatly into their ideas of the world. His love sometimes rough, but always straightforward. So that night I sat around a campfire in the, in the, as I sat around a campfire in the mountains, I felt loneliness wash over me. And for the second time that day, I, I was asked why I was alone, but this time by the mountains themselves. Uh, it wasn't a bad feeling, it was an honest feeling, and refreshing in its sharp clarity. There was a feeling of loss, of missing people back home who I only now realized I cared about, and who care about me. And I realized also, more in my gut than anywhere else, that loss implies belonging. You miss something because it's part of you in some way. You don't miss things that you have nothing to do with. And to realize that I had to get away from people who often trigger my shame more than my sorrow, to a mountain whose silence allowed my sadness to speak. So talk about not obvious, I had to fly to Albuquerque, drive for hours and get lost in a wilderness, only to feel like I belonged here in Philadelphia, in this city, in this neighborhood, in this community. The mountain, in its severity and indifference to my needs and preferences, also offered a presence large enough to hear and absorb my sorrow. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Comforter, who will come in his absence. And I think that this ultimately is how we become his witnesses. The Comforter, like a mountain, shows himself in our sorrow and shows that our sorrow is really just a yearning for wholeness. Our sense of belonging that is strangely hidden in our feelings of loss. Like a desert, he teaches us not to ignore our thirst, but to let it be the thing that leads us, to follow the way of the heart in all its longings. So as we conclude, I want to briefly mention some ways that we can try to make a little desert in our own lives. You know, there's nothing magical about a desert. Uh, being there doesn't automatically give you any insight, just like buying a piece of exercise equipment doesn't automatically get you in shape. Um, and I think that we can actually learn to apply the lessons of the desert to our own life. I think in some way the ascension has turned the whole world into a desert, into a place of seeking prompting us to look more deeply at the places of abandonment in our own life in order to discover our thirst for wholeness. Before I continue, I do also want to say that for many people, deprivation and abandonment are not choices that they themselves have made, as the monks did who willingly went into the desert in the fourth century. For a lot of people, those are choices that are made for them by systems of poverty, 
by loss, by acts of violence or abuse. And in some way, probably all of us at some point are faced with circumstances that pull us out of predictability and force us to deal with the reality of pain and loss. So the first thing, and I think the most important, is to learn to pay attention. And especially to learn to pay attention to your pain. Not to critically analyze it, not to try to figure it out, but simply to be aware of it, wherever it is, whatever its cause. For some, this might mean just accept the re really accepting that it's there, letting yourself feel the things that are beneath the surface. For others, it might mean giving voice to it in some way. And for me, I usually need to make my pain external in some way in order to really recognize it as something that's real. And recognizing it makes it less overwhelming and turns sadness into something that connects with love and compassion for yourself and others. I think it's especially crucial to be aware of what's going on in your body if you're involved in the pain of others. Uh, whether just because it's a feature of your daily life or if you're actively involved in the helping profession. Often other people's needs, other people's need elicits from us a feeling of helplessness, which if we're not careful can be quickly covered up with guilt or the idea that we need to somehow prove that we are helpful. So slow down, take deep breaths to connect with what is happening in your body, talk to someone, journal, uh, go to a cell, these smaller groups of folks that meet in homes throughout the week. They're a good place to make yourself known to others and even to yourself. The second thing you can do uh, to introduce a bit of desert in your life is to take on a small rule of prayer that you can keep and to do it by discipline. The important thing is really that you can keep it. I think it's easy, just like a lot of people go into the desert unprepared for the rigor of it, I think a lot of people are tempted to try to take on a discipline of prayer that's just unmanageable. So keep it small, keep it doable, but make it something that you actually will do and can do um, and then do it. What makes prayer effective is not so much how you pray, but that you do pray. Often it's not fun and doesn't give you obvious benefits, but the benefits of regular prayer are borne out over years. So when boredom or laziness creeps in, the temptation to skip a day, fight it a little bit. Don't just give in. Um, some examples of things that you can do, um, you can read a psalm, you can journal, you can sit quietly for five minutes, you can practice uh, mindfulness meditation or uh, something like centering prayer, which is a prayer of quiet um, where you repeat uh, a simple phrase to yourself like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.